As we begin our message today, I want to ask you a question which might be a little bit challenging. As you think about your final moments, who do you think your thoughts will turn to? So whenever that moment comes at the end of your life, whether that's a long way off or not too far in the distant future, who do you think that your thoughts would turn to in those final moments? For some of us, we'd probably think about our family. We might think about our spouse, or we might think about our kids, or we might think about our parents, or we might think about our siblings, our brothers and sisters. For some of us, we might think about some friends who are really, really close to us, maybe some friends who are actually as close as family, or maybe even closer than family. In some ways, it's a bit of a morbid question, and it's a very hard thing for us to think about. It's kind of something that I know as I was putting this together, I was like, "Eh, is that an okay question to ask? But that's part of the point of why I felt like it was an important question to wrestle with, because this series that we're doing is taking us into the final moments of Jesus' life. And it's important for us to recognise the things that Jesus goes through as he hangs on the cross And then the statements that he makes that come out of these moments that he's going through. So you have your teaching notes inside of Connect News. So if you want to jot things down as we go through today's message, you can feel free to do that. Uh, We're doing this series that's called Final Words, where we are making our way through this season that's called Lent. uh, The season that takes us up to Easter, where we have an opportunity to really enter into Jesus' journey. And to be able to say, how do we prepare ourselves well for what we're going to reflect on and celebrate when we get to Good Friday and Easter Sunday? And in particular, we're taking some time to look at these astounding statements that Jesus makes while he's on the cross. To be able to say, what can we learn from those statements, but also what can we learn about what it means for us to follow Jesus together? So a couple of weeks ago, we began this series where we talked about the word forgiven to recognise this staggering reality that in Jesus' final moments, he offers forgiveness to these people who had done so much harm to him. Last week, we talked about the word rescued, and we talked about how Jesus offers rescue to each one of us, to rescue us so that we can experience the kingdom, which is everything that God has always wanted us to be able to experience, and that Jesus rescues us from those things in our lives that get in the way of us being able to experience the kingdom. And so if you've missed those messages or you want to catch up on them, uh, you can go to our website and uh, you can watch last week's message. It's on the front page of our website. Uh, You can subscribe to our podcast and uh, get an audio version of it that way. Today, the word that we're going to focus on is the word supported. And to be able to do that, we're going to have a look at this snapshot that comes from John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. John 19, verses 25 to 27. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. So we want to begin by saying there's a little bit of confusion about how many women are actually present in this snapshot that John gives us. Is there three women or is there actually four women? And it really depends on how you use grammar. So we know that Jesus's mum is there, Mary. We know who she is. We're also told that Mary's sister, so Jesus' aunt, is there. And then there's a comma, and it says Mary, 
the wife of Clopas is also there, and Mary Magdalene is there. And so for many years, there's been a lot of debate about whether the statement is Mary, Jesus's mother, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who is Jesus's aunt, and then Mary Magdalene, or whether these are four separate women. Most people agree that it is four because it would be very rare that two sisters would be given the same name and both be called Mary. So the understanding is that it's Mary, Jesus's mother, Jesus's aunt, whose name we don't know, Mary, who is the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. Now, there's an interesting question about who this guy Clopas is and why he gets a little bit of a note in the midst of all of this. Uh, most people would, would say that Clopas was probably one of the 72 disciples that was a part of Jesus's wider network. So we know that Jesus had 12 disciples who he was really close with. And then he had this wider group of people uh, who followed him around and were involved in the work that he was doing. And so most people would say Clopas was probably one of those wider disciples. But we don't really know much about him at all. And that's an important thing to note, because this is one of the times that helps us to understand why we can trust in these biographies about Jesus. Sometimes we wrestle with that question, and you've probably wrestled with that, and you know people who do, and say, well, how can we believe that the Bible is true? In particular, how can we believe the stuff about Jesus that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? This statement is a really great example that you wouldn't just add in a statement, Mary, the wife of Clopas, for no reason at all, with no context. If you were intentionally making up a story, then you would have said, Mary, who's the wife of some guy that we knew something about, one of the disciples or one of the other people that we'd heard stories about. We know nothing about this guy. And so that's the sort of thing that you would say if you were just kind of jotting down some thoughts about some things that were happening. It's also important, and this is a good thing to hold on to, to recognise that fiction in Jesus' day was very different to fiction in our day. So when you read a fiction novel now, we'll often go into lots and lots of detail and we'll sometimes throw random facts in there. But if you read the fiction that was around in Jesus' day, that just never, ever happened. Fiction didn't go into random details like someone who was the wife of someone else. It just never happened. So it's a really important phrase for us to hold on to, to say this is one of the reasons that we can trust that the things that we're reading here are things that actually happened. We also know that Mary Magdalene is one of the women who is here as well. And we know that Mary Magdalene is one of the people who has also been following Jesus around for a significant amount of time. Mary Magdalene's interesting because she's actually mentioned 12 times throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which is more than the majority of the disciples are mentioned. So she gets mentioned a fair bit. We first read about her in Luke chapter 8, where Jesus casts some demons out of her, and then she chooses to follow Jesus. And the implication is that she also supports him financially in the work that she uh, that he is doing. Now, you may have heard at different times that Mary Magdalene has kind of this seedy reputation. You might have seen that in movies or heard people talk about that, that Mary was probably a sinful woman or that Mary may have even been a reformed prostitute. Where that comes from is some references that we find in uh, John chapter 11 about this woman named Mary of Bethany and also the unnamed woman who we read about that anoints Jesus' feet uh, with perfume. There's been some people in about the 300s who joined all of this together and said all of those are the same person. It's all Mary Magdalene, and so that's why she's got the reputation in the way that she's portrayed in a lot of the movies that we have. 
There's actually not a lot of proof that that is true. Mary Magdalene seems to be someone who just had this amazing experience with Jesus and then followed him around. Uh, But this is, again, one of these things that we're not 100% certain about. What we do know is that obviously she's one of Jesus' close companions, otherwise she wouldn't be here in these final moments of Jesus' life. So it's good for us to just pause and think about Jesus as he hangs on the cross, looking down at these four incredible women who are there to support him. We want to remember that all of the disciples, except for John, who we'll talk about in a moment, have left Jesus. Peter has denied that he ever knew Jesus or had anything to do with him, and the rest of the disciples have just run away. And so here Jesus is with these amazing women, who are some of the only people who are left to support him. And that must have given him an amazing sense of comfort. But it must have also given him an amazing sense of grief to look down at them and to see what they were going through, to see how sad they would have been, how confused they would have been, how upset they would have been about all of the things that have happened to Jesus and looking up at him and seeing him hanging there. And in particular, it's good for us to think a little bit about what things must have been like for Mary, Jesus' mother. Think back to when Jesus first arrived, or before Jesus actually first arrived, the angel that appears to Mary and tells her that this amazing thing is about to happen to her and all of the prophecies about what Jesus was going to do. Think about that early journey to Bethlehem and Jesus being born in the stable and then the visit of the shepherds and then later on the visit of the wise men who come as well. We fast forward a little bit to one of the only snapshots that we've got of Jesus' early life where he's in the temple and Mary and Joseph have been to Jerusalem with a bunch of other people for the Passover festival and then have left and then realise, where's Jesus? (laughs) And so they go back to Jerusalem and they find him in the temple and are blown away at the way in which he's talking and asking questions and sharing with the teachers of the law and the religious leaders there. Think about everything that Mary would have seen and heard over the last three years. We know that Mary was present at a number of the times when Jesus shared things and a number of the times when Jesus performed miracles. You can pretty much guarantee that Mary also would have heard about all of the other things that were happening in all the other towns. You can imagine neighbours knocking on Mary's door and saying, hey Mary, did you hear about what Jesus was up to the other day? So Mary would have heard all of these things. And we're told multiple times that Mary treasured these things in her heart, which is a beautiful way of expressing just this sense that she would have had of pride in Jesus and this sense of recognising who he was and all that he was doing. And yet now Mary sees Jesus hanging on the cross. Is this in any way how Mary would have expected Jesus' life to end? how she would have thought that things were going to finish or play out. There's no way this would have been a part of her expectations. We want to remember that none of the people who are a part of this narrative know that the resurrection is going to happen. It's one of the challenges for us all the time that when we read things that are happening around Jesus' crucifixion, we know the way that the story ends. But they didn't. Jesus had said some things about it, but you can imagine if you were there, you wouldn't have really understood what Jesus was saying about coming back from the dead in three days or any of those things. You would have seen Jesus in front of you and thought, this is it. This is the end. All of those hopes and dreams that I had about what Jesus is going to do are now finished. 
Mary certainly would have been dealing with a lot as she processes through all of that. The other person that we're told is a part of this scene is this person who is simply named as the disciple that Jesus loved. And we understand that that is John talking about himself. John who wrote the book of John and also wrote a couple of letters in the New Testament. What's fascinating is that this is the way that John always refers to himself. Throughout his book, he never says, I was there, or never talks about John. He just always names himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so any time that you read that through John, that's John referring to himself. And I think it's a really amazing way to think of where your identity lies. I've been thinking this week, imagine if that was a starting point for all of us. I've been thinking about it for myself. Imagine if that was my starting point every day to say my beginning point is simply this. I'm one of the people that Jesus loves and that everything else was built out from there. My identity was not shaped by what other people think of me or what other people say about me. It's not shaped by my successes or my failures. Shaped first and foremost by this truth. I'm one of the people that Jesus loves. John doesn't seem to need to feel any need to talk about himself or to draw attention to himself at all. He simply refers to himself by saying, I'm a loved disciple of Jesus. And remember, this is the only one of the disciples who sticks with Jesus to the very end. And I wonder whether those things are connected. So, we're told, when Jesus looked down and saw his mother Mary standing there beside the disciple that he loved, John, Jesus said to Mary, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, John, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, our our understanding at this point is that Joseph has passed away. We don't know the full context of that in terms of when that happened or what the circumstances were around that. But our understanding is that at some point, Joseph has left the scene. And so Mary is now a widow. And so in Jesus' day, if you were a widow, then you were unable to work. You were unable to get an education and therefore you were unable to get a job and to earn an income in any way. And so the New Testament talks regularly about the importance of the church taking care of widows for that reason. To say these people literally have nothing and they have no way of being able to earn an income and that's not their fault. So someone needs to look out for them. And so here we have Jesus as he hangs on the cross looking down at his mother and recognising that that's the situation she's in and saying, I want to make sure that you know that you're being taken care of. And as we've looked at throughout this series, it's another staggering moment of recognising Jesus' ability, given all that he's going through, all that he's been through, to look out and to be able to say, what are the needs of others? What are the needs of the people that are in front of me? It is interesting that this is something that Jesus feels like he needs to do because we know that Jesus had some brothers. We read about that at different times, that Mary and Joseph had some other kids. But we also know that there was a bit of tension in their family. 
We read particularly earlier on in John that his brothers didn't really believe in him and you can imagine that there would have been some tension when they were gathered around the family table about this guy Jesus and but you're just my brother and yet you're supposedly doing all of these things. There was a little bit of tension that was often there that we read a number of times about. And so for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't feel like his brothers are in a place where they want to or can look after Mary. And so one of the final things that Jesus focuses on and says is the importance of making sure that people are looked after. In particular, people whose biological family are not necessarily there to look after them. And what Jesus seems to be saying is that in those moments where biological family is not there for whatever reason, that's why spiritual family is so important. That spiritual family in those moments can step up and take care of people who are in need. It's one of the reasons that we use spiritual family as one of the key words that we talk about as a church to say that's who we want to be as a church family, is a spiritual family. And we talk specifically about four things with that to say that a spiritual family is a place where you can be authentic and real, a place where you can be accepted, a place where you can be encouraged, and a place where you can be supported. And we recognise that there's always this little pull in us about using that word family because so many people come from dysfunctional and broken families and often say that in reality all of us come from dysfunctional families. It's just some of our families are a little more dysfunctional than others. But there's levels of dysfunction wherever we come from. For people who have a really bad experience of family, though, to project that onto who we're trying to be as a church can be a very dangerous thing. But our goal is to say, all of us have this craving for the best version of what family is supposed to be. All of us have that baked into us. In actual fact, the people who go through difficult challenges with their families know even more what that family should be like because they miss out on that. And so that's who we want to be. We talk about having an aspiration of being the best version of what family can be. Now, do we get that right 100% of the time? Of course we don't. That's because we're people, we're not perfect. And so we mess up and we're infallible. I mean, we're fallible in the way that we go about being family. But our aspiration is to say, how can we help people to find a sense of home here How can we help people to experience the support that comes from being a part of a spiritual family? One other thing that we can recognise in what Jesus says here is his ability to be able to relate to us in the dynamics that all of us experience in those final moments of our life or as we think about the final moments of our life where we wonder who's going to take care of that, who's going to take care of them the grief that we go through, the logistics and thinking through all of that stuff. A lot of us have had experiences of that as we think about the end of our lives or will have experiences of that when we get to the end of our life. And this is yet another example where Jesus shows that he can relate to us, that he understands the things that we go through. Jesus isn't this superhuman who just kind of floats above humanity and doesn't really understand what it means for us to experience life. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus showing us, I know what it feels like to be human. I know what it's like to live here. And so in those moments where we struggle, in those moments where we go through difficult times, Jesus is able to wrap his arms around us and say, I understand completely what you're going through because I've been there. 
So I want to give us an opportunity to reflect on what that means for us. And the reflection question that we're going to use is this. What does it mean for us to embrace being supported and supportive as we journey towards Easter? What does it mean to embrace being supported and supportive as we journey towards Easter? Our Lent series are generally an opportunity for us to walk with Jesus so that we can enter into a little bit of experiencing what it is that he experienced. But the purpose of that is always to challenge ourselves to say, well, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus? Not just to follow his teaching, but to follow the example that he sets for us. So for some of us, it is about wrestling with what it means for us to allow others to support us. It's a challenge because all of us like to kind of act, we've got it all together and everything's okay and we're fine, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine, even when we're really not. And so the challenge in this is to say, what does it look like for us to be authentic and to be honest and to be real and vulnerable, especially when we're struggling? Being able to open up about the ways in which we need to be supported or that we want to be supported. To recognise that no one around us is a mind reader, and sometimes we fall into the trap of that. Everyone else should just know what I need. They should just be able to understand. But no one has that ability. This also reminds us why it's so important for us to develop close relationships with each other. Being open and honest and vulnerable is not something that you can do with a large group of people, even a group of people the size that we are as a church. We can't know what's happening for everyone else and it's not appropriate for us to share everything that's going on in our lives with everyone else. But what does it look like for us to have two, three, four, five other people who we can journey with on a regular basis where we're able to build that sense of trust to say, I know I can trust you with what I'm going through. I know I can open up and be honest and real about what's going on, but I also know that I can depend on you to be there for me. So for some of us, it's about wrestling with that, to say, what does it mean for me as a part of our spiritual family to get myself into some circles where I feel like I can open up and I can be real and honest about the things that I'm struggling with so that others can offer me support. But for others of us, it's about thinking about what it looks like to be support-ive and to recognise that at the end of the day, all of us do want to be supported, even if we struggle to admit that or even if we struggle to say what that looks like. If we're honest with ourselves, we all want people who care for us and think about our needs. The challenge is if all of us adopt that posture and say everyone else should think about me and my needs, if we all do that, then no one thinks about anyone else and what their needs are. And so the challenge is to say, as a spiritual family, how are we proactively looking out for the needs of others? How are we looking for ways that we can support each other? How are we asking questions about how people are genuinely doing taking the time to check in with people who we know are struggling in different ways. For some of us, the challenge about what it means to follow Jesus in this is to say, how can I be someone who's more supportive to the people that are a part of my circle and the people that are a part of my life? So I want to give you a couple of minutes to be able to just reflect on that. You can take some time to jot some thoughts down or to turn to the person next to you and share a couple of things. But what are you sensing that Jesus is saying to you as we think about this idea of what it means to embrace being supported and supportive as we continue our journey towards Easter?
Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll transition across to communion. Jesus, once again, we're amazed as we stop and reflect on these final moments of your life. And as we stop and recognise that even in all of the pain that you were going through, in all of the challenges that you were going through, with all that you were facing, your focus is on others. We thank you that over and over again, you show us that that's the way, not just that you taught, but that that's the way that you lived. And so we're grateful for this snapshot that reminds us that a part of what it means for us to be a church is to be a spiritual family where we're there for each other. That in particular, for those who are struggling, who don't necessarily have biological family around or who come from challenging situations in their families, that we have the opportunity to be able to offer the best version of what family can look like and specifically within that to be there to support and care for each other. And so I pray that you would help us to continue to get better at that as a church. Help us to continue to know what it looks like for us to open up and to be honest and vulnerable and to be able to share the things that we're struggling with. But also help us to be proactive about the ways in which we can look out for those who are struggling and who are going through difficult times. Thanks that in that you don't call us to be the people who have all of the answers, but that you simply call us to be people who can wrap an arm around someone else and be able to say, I'm here for you. Even if I don't necessarily have any answers, even if I don't necessarily have any resources to be able to give you, to help you with what you're going through, I'm here with you as you journey through this. And so let's do this together. As we continue to move towards Easter, we pray that you would challenge us about what it looks like for us to live that out, not just in our connections with each other, but in the relationships that we have with the people around us. We know that there are so many others that are a part of our extended families, that are in our workplaces, in our schools, at uni, the people that live on our streets, and the people that we have connections with through the different organisations that we serve in who are also lonely and isolated and struggling. And so we pray that you would help us to be spiritual family for them as well, and in doing so to give them an opportunity to be able to experience the amazing others-centred love that you offer to us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.